Welcome everyone to the Wild West Podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle travel editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who are defining and redefining what we do when we go outdoors. Today we're excited to have mountain climber, Everest summiter, ice climber, rock climber, mountain legend, Conrad Anker on the podcast. Conrad is truly a climbing OG. He's climbed Mount Everest a number of times. He's set first ascents on peaks around the world uh, for the past 30 years. And he's mentored climbers like Alex Honnold. Uh, he's also the star of the award-winning documentary Meru. Uh, I learned during this podcast, actually, that for a time, he also had sponsorships from Pete's Coffee and from Apple. Uh, the dude's awesome. Conrad lives in Montana, but he was actually born in San Francisco, and most of his family lives in Northern California. Uh, they run a restaurant in Big Oak Flat on the way to Yosemite. And Conrad was in town recently to attend the American Alpine Club annual dinner, so he and I met at the headquarters of the North Face in Alameda to record this podcast. He's one of the North Face's original athletes. He's been sponsored since 1983, and so that means that he really helped shape the idea for what a professional outdoor athlete is, and he sort of helped lay the blueprint, uh, if there is one, for how to make a living out of climbing mountains. If there's anything that climbing has taught me, and it's been a terrible price to pay for this lesson, is that to appreciate life and to be who we are and to be present with people. The season for climbing Everest kicks off in May, so Conrad is gearing up right now to lead a scientific expedition on the mountain to gather data on climate change. He's a very erudite guy, as you guys will hear in the podcast. He's clearly done a lot of thinking on the ways he lives his life. So something as seemingly simple as, what kind of coffee are you drinking this morning, uh, can get deep real quick. Um, and in fact, we talk about coffee, we talk about getting older, we talk about the importance of mentorship and climbing, we talk about Conrad's thoughts on social media, and, and much more in this pod. So I, I hope you guys enjoy it. We'll get to my conversation with Conrad Anker in a moment, but first this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with mountaineer Conrad Anker. Well, first off, Conrad, I just wanted to say thanks very much for making the time. First, I wanted to ask what you have in your thermos there. Mm. What are you drinking? It's uh, probably the, the coffee from the... <laughs> nothing exceptional. Is it, Yeah, nothing exceptional. Yeah. Is it acceptable? I hear you're a bit of a coffee snob. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to use the coffee snob. I'll say a coffee aficionado. So <laughs> life's too short for, for bad coffee, but... Bad coffee is better than no coffee. So when you need to drink truck stop coffee, you drink truck stop coffee. I mean, this is, yeah, it's great. It's, it's from the, we're here at the North Face offices. and this. It's probably pretty good. It's probably yeah, third wave or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. It's warm. It's, it gets it done. So <laughs> did, I, did I hear from somebody that you have a special affinity for Pete's? I love Pete's coffee. Yeah. Okay. And not that we need. We're, this is no like cross brand promotion or anything. Yeah. I just heard that specifically. Yeah, Major Dickinson's. Yeah, and for years it was like, I got Pete's coffee. I was a Pete's coffee ambassador, and then. Oh really? Like officially? Officially, I was in their brochures <laughs> yeah. and all that, and then they had a new marketing person, and they were like, "Oh, you're gone." Same thing happened at Apple. They were like, a new person came in. They looked through their roster of people they were supporting, and they were like, "No, nope, you're not relevant anymore." I'm like, okay. Oh but, man, yeah. life of a pro athlete, I guess. Yeah, but you roll with it, so yeah. But it's uh, it's no big deal. But yeah, good coffee is 
is nice and pretty important. Yeah. Do you ever use the AeroPress? So we, <laughs> my girlfriend is kind of the coffee snob between yeah. the two of us. We've been using a Chemex mm -hmm. for a yeah. while. Uh, and we just got an AeroPress and we have yeah. not used it yet. Oh. Is that I your... have the Chemex at home. Yeah. And I have the, uh, the square filters and I have a certain way. And if you really want to get into it, you weigh your coffee to put it in if you want to have an equal, an even brew each time. Because coffee, depending on how you grind it and how old it is, has a different weight to it by scoop. So, yeah. But I would just put them in there and then... Um, Do you grind by hand? Not by hand. I have a little machine. Do you have a burr so, grinder? Oh, it's like... I do have my mother's um, antique coffee grinder that, and you'd have a little wooden tray. Yeah, my dad has that. Yeah. With the big hand crank on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I so, love that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit like wearing a cotton flannel shirt out ice climbing when you can be wearing current state-of-the-art stuff. And I mean, the coffee grinder we have, we plug it in and there goes the coffee, so. No. Um, well, we are recording at the North Face headquarters and... You've been a North Face sponsored athlete for 35 years, 37 years? Yeah, I started in 1983. 83. September 1983, and that was at uh, a retail store. I sold down jackets, raincoats, sleeping bags, car carabiners, and climbing shoes. And then um, 1987, I got a $400 grant from the American Alpine Club and a raincoat tent and a sleeping bag from North Face, drove the Alcan up to Alaska. and did the second of ascent of uh, Gurney Peak with some of my buddies, and that was uh, my start with it. And then, 92, we sort of created the athlete team. Yeah. And that was sort of the beginning of that. Um, did you, I wanted to ask you about that. Did you kind of have a, a say in shaping that, or yeah. how'd that go? It was uh, Bill Simon at the, at the time, um, was the president of the North Face, and certainly one of the visionary leaders in the outdoor space um, going back to the 70s and 80s. So he had um, gave us free reign and, sent and helped us create the athlete team in 1992. And we started, um, it was the climbing team then because we, were, we hadn't gone to include skiing and trail running with it yet. And then... What, what was the, um, I just want to ask real yeah. quick, what was the ethic at the time that you were thinking about when crafting the climbing team? Was it just like we can get a cool group of climbers and mountaineers together, or was there uh, kind of a guiding concept that you were trying to work within? From the 40,000 foot level, it was probably to increase the awareness and the ability and, and, and to get climbing to be a better and sharper thing. I mean, that was really a key part to it. Um, but, um, and then from working with North Face, it was a, it was a, a value proposition. What would they get in return for this? And so, at the time, it ruffled a few feathers within the industry. And so, how so? Well, there was backlash saying, "Oh, we don't pay for your vacations, or we don't pay for our athletes because we don't have to. They want to go to our brand anyway." So, they s stepped out and they started paying outdoor athletes for the first brand to do that. And um, I mean, we were basically making beer money. It wasn't. In your time with the brand, how have you seen <clears throat> the brand develop, the proposition develop, and also the sport develop, and kind of how are those things intertwined? Yeah. That's a big question. I'm kind of asking you for like the, ent yeah. <laughs> the entire history of, uh, you know, adventure outdoor sponsorships, but yeah. I'm just curious what you've seen looking um, back over the last couple decades. Exploration, historically, if you look at the Latin root of the word, it means to leave, which is ex, and plolata, it means to call out. Expedition means to leave on foot. Excursion is a slightly larger, so all of those have their Latin root in it. 
And exploration was funded by the nation state, so it was there to go and conquer and reap the rewards of visiting. And beginning with the uh, 19th and 20th century, it became more aspirational. We went to the South Pole. Mm -hmm. There obviously wasn't people to enslave there. There weren't people to convert to a religion. There wasn't... Precious metal or something. Or rubber trees. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just to say that we could do it. And that was um, with the North Pole, South Pole, Everest, the Mariana Trench, and the Moon. All those are... Those four examples are... Um, where we're getting to a physical goal with that. Because it's there. Because it's there. And we were funded <laughs> for it, um, to quote Mallory. And th- those trips were funded by the nation state, and then science was also a guise um, to vote, or uh, quite legitimately was in there, so we can better understand that. And then and then there was sort of the the people would go out and recreate outdoors, so in, in the form of relaxation and rejuvenation. And so that was sort of the the bigger arc of what exploration is and how that is. Um, And then with the sort of climbing becoming mainstream Mm -hmm. um, and probably a a couple things that were inflection points on that, one was the advent of the climbing gym and Mm -hmm. the other one was the commercialization of Everest. So, and both of those are in different spheres. One's rock climbing and one's alpine climbing. So rather than... With Everest, it primarily it was um, a national expedition. So Nepal would grant a permit. Well, last year the Italians went. This year it's going to be another nationality, the Japanese. And, and then early, late 80s, early 90s, and they just multiple pit permits shared things, and it sort of changed the commercialization of it. Yeah, it sounds like we're talking 25 years ago, roughly. Yeah. Everest and climbing mm-hmm. gyms. Okay. Yeah, and both those points. And so the climbing gym was able to, you were able to, to train and, and it became a sport unto itself. And it's been wonderful to see the growth and how good climbing gyms have become at fostering a community and a dialogue. And we can touch on that in a little bit later. Um, and that they've done a really good job with that and kind of uh, changed that. So that's climbing outdoor pursuits is becoming more mainstream. Yeah. It's interesting that you describe those different eras of kind of exploration and, and adventuring outdoors. What is the era that we're in now, you think? How would you characterize it? It's the digital era. something I wonder yeah. about. It's, it's the what, sorry? The digital era. The digital era. Yeah. Okay. Because it's, I mean, we're tethered to these damn handheld computers, and they're great, but they're also, we really don't know what they're doing. I mean, they're only 10 years old, and, you know, we begin to wonder how they're going to affect the growth of a young person's mind. But the, the amount of connectivity... I mean, I've got a supercomputer right there next yeah. to my coffee mug. And I was thinking about what expeditions were like in 1987, my first uh, expedition. 1988 was my first trip to the Himalaya. And when we would come back, we would send a telex to our parents to say we were okay. And you'd write a postcard. We didn't have sat phones. And yeah, you went off the map and you were there. And now it's like this Everest trip. It's like... Okay, we've got a an internet modem set up through the satellite. We've got satellite phones. There's a 3G cell tower at Everest Base Camp. There's a 4G cell tower at. Yeah, mm-hmm. how does that affect the actual sport or the actual act of you know exploring? It's made it more public, and I mean, you look at social media and Instagram, and, and um, it's very aspirational the, the images and putting. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I've been part of that platform since 2011 and but yeah we're 
the greatest challenges, yeah, they've been met. I mean, Everest has been climbed without oxygen. And, right. I mean, we're creating challenges to make them more, you know, like, yeah, I climbed it in my flip-flops. Right. That's I what I... climbed it in my shorts, and so I climbed it without... And it's there. And so the personal discovery is still there. And that, um, this race to do it, to climb it faster, to climb it, to climb it better and all this and that is... Um, is great, and I was caught up in that in the 90s. People now enjoy being outdoors and for the rejuvenation and the, how it makes you feel more whole as a person. Um, but we're still, we're still wrapped up in the, what social media creates is the FOMO and fear of missing out. Yeah. The Jomo, the jealousy of missing out. Yodo, which is the only deck once. That's Alex's <laughs> motto. Do you think we're going to get to a point of saturation with that? I'm already, I mean, I can look at beautiful images on Instagram all day and uh, beautiful images of people, whatever, doing powder turns, climbing awesome peaks, like living the life. But it's already, you know, I feel like there's already kind of a turn against social media that we're seeing, right? With Facebook, especially. Um, and I just wonder if there's, a point where there's we're going to hit some kind of mark and the next evolution of this is going to happen where uh you know people are putting more whatever filters on their device usage um and sort of dialing that back a bit it seems like that would have a direct effect on this you know kind of culture of um showing adventure on social media and creating that aspirational you know creating that yeah. that aspirational effect on people and sharing your your experiences outdoors has always been part of it. Storytelling is, I mean, 40,000 years ago when we had, we domesticated wolves into dogs and we would tell stories around the fire and we always had that archetypical story of adventure, of the hero's tale, someone leaving the comfort of the tribe to go out and explore and, and risk life and then come back with a story. And so that is what it means to be human. And we translated that into from stories around the campfire to lectures. And then they had lanterns, which were the, the predecessor to a slideshow. And then we had slideshows. And yeah. I still remember clicking through. And the, when I got a dissolve unit and I had two, two things and a dissolver and I would travel with it so there wouldn't be that blank spot. And now people program a blank spot to make their PowerPoint look more authentic. And it's just like you put vinyl scratch sounds on your <laughs> DJ mix. And so yeah. in a way, this we're going to come back to, we're still going to be sharing stories in what manner do we do it. And But this is, it's like social media is like eating 10 candy bars in a sitting. It's a <laughs> bit much. I mean, yeah, you want a candy bar, but finding a way to make it real authentic and relevant is, is, is the challenges we're going to face. And so, because it's intellectual junk food. It's not like reading a book or studying something or really focusing. It just so, it just preys on attention. So this brings me to a question that I was told to ask you by a friend of you. I reached out to a handful of, yeah. of people around you before this interview to ask them what I should ask you. And one of them told me that I needed to ask you uh, what your thoughts are on mentoring younger climbers. We are where we are as society because we rest on the shoulders of those that came before us. Whether it's knowledge, engineering, technology, what we have today is a result of previous generations passing that on to them. And I mean, there's probably 
there's three young climbers within three active young climbers in our climbing community in Montana that I'm actively mentoring. That's on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis and helping them out and giving them tips and things that I can do and encouraging them, giving them that vote of confidence. But it's also as simple as a simple, it can be a, a one-off by coming up and saying, yeah, this is a good thing. You can, you're on the right path. You can do that in that moment. And so the responsibility that comes with being a public person to me is pretty important. I can't help, I mean, the, the easiest window kind of into, you know, the mind of Conrad Anchor or other, you know, sort of pro athletes at any given moment is by tuning into their social feeds. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, you know, on um, Instagram, you tend to write a little bit longer and it's usually that, you know, you're addressing some like deeper thoughts. Um, that have been, you know, that you've been kind of turning over in your head. There was one, and there was one actually that I jotted down here that I, I just thought I'd run by you that's, I think, kind of pertinent to what we're talking about right now. And it's posted on Instagram about, about death being a part of this, this active, you know, adventurous lifestyle. Yeah. And you said, if you're serious about gravity, it's not if, it's when. How have you come to terms with the risks involved in what you do? It's a big question, but I wanted to, yeah. ask, I wanted to ask you that. Well, thank you for... Looking at my social feed, so it's interesting. It's yeah. a, it's like a heavy dose in the middle of all of that candy. That yeah, you were, and you were talking well, they're supposed to be people are like, oh, you're not using Instagram. It's supposed to be instant, and yeah. you're supposed to take a picture with it and just have some pithy quote or just no, no, self-aggrandizing. Like, I've got a five thousand word essay to get off my chest right now. Yeah, now how can I do it in two hundred words? Because that's what you're limited. And yeah. I'm a more of a caption guy because I'm not a great photographer, and so I. Everything that I do on that is from within, and it. Um, so, anyways, back to um, death and mortality. So, <laughs> yeah, lighter subject. Yeah. So, um, some people they just don't. They're never cognizant that we have a very short period of time on this planet. And so, if there's anything that climbing has taught me, and it's been a terrible price to pay for this lesson is that to appreciate life and to be who we are and to be present with people and having lost too many friends that that it's created it's stressful then having escaped having had three close calls in the mountains with near misses and, and accidents and then having a heart attack each one of those you're like a war movie you're just surging with adrenaline after it happened, you're like, yeah, I made it. Your body is just saturated with endorphins and adrenaline, and you can taste it in your tongue, and it's on a physical, chemical level that you have experienced that. And I don't try to go out and see that and seek it out. It's not that that it is any day, but those have that, they have that fundamental change within you. So, and having lost friends and, and having got close to there, that... Um, you're like, okay, I'm going to make the most of this day. I'm not going to uh, flitter away. <laughs> I'm going to do something that's purposeful and meaningful with it. Well, speaking of your sort of day-to-day thought process, another question that I was told to ask you, what does feeding the rat mean? Oh, <laughs> feeding the rat. Yeah, you can look hashtag feeding the rat. So, um <laughs> It's is that a, a hashtag that you've grown up? Yeah. Oh, so I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was, I, was um, I heard that it was something that you say regularly. I'm not sure that I know yeah. what it means. I wasn't really told. When I get too much stuff and 
the hard drive. I've got to go out and defrag the hard drive. <laughs> Going out and climbing is that moment for me. So putting myself in a risky situation where I, I, move, I, uh, I get a little bit of adrenaline or I go, I, I go climbing and I come back and I'm a more balanced person. So, I mean, here it is, what, the 7th of March or 8th of March? March 8th, and I've had three days of climbing since the New Year's. Oh, really? Personal days of climbing. Okay. So I'm, oftentimes I climb for work, and I'm doing that. I, I get that. But a day where it's just going out, and for me it's new routing and exploring and finding and, and projecting harder climbs and things like that. So, But it's okay. I'll, sometimes you got to put your back into the or and row hard and that's what I'll be doing and it's for something good that I'm working hard on now but feeding yeah. the rat is getting out and and uh and coming back relaxed yeah so. uh and so I don't want to keep you too much longer but you are on your way from this to your family's cafe is that right yeah why don't you talk a little bit about that I learned about that I don't remember when maybe a few years ago just kind of offhandedly but it sounds like this is um this is like a, a piece of your life. Your family owns this cafe. Yeah. Uh, on, sort of on the way to Yosemite, essentially. That's correct. Here. Yeah, so I'm here in the Bay Area. And then uh, my father's side of the family is from southern Tuolumne County, Big Oak Flat, population 200. Yeah, they came there in 1853 with the gold rush. and How'd they do? Well, I mean, from a... I mean, the Miwok Indians were there along the Native Americans, the Miwok tribe in Yosemite and all that area. They were there long beforehand. So that's, yeah, it was the gold rush. And so rather than being gold miners, they were provisioners. And so priest station is what that is. And so American comfort food, which means that it's a deep fryers in the integral part of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. When you're in Tuolumne County, you got to, the locals keep you in business, and so, yeah, when you're in Berkeley, you can have a, a vegan quinoa outfit, but you got to be selling sweet potato fries and cheeseburgers up there, so, yeah, things are changing. And it's nice being there, and that was how I got my start into the wilderness, is we would go out, and yeah. we had uh, donkeys and mules, and we'd do these two-week backpacking trips with... We'd get the mules, and we'd fill them up, and then we'd just go up into some remote meadow and let the mules graze and my whole thing was uh, making little wooden ships and floating them down the rivulets and streams that were in the meadows and making little boy dams probably wasn't the most environmentally <laughs> but geology has moved them all out but those were the best times as a kid and that's how I got my start in climbing and at age 14 and things like climbing gyms weren't there you had to be a backpacker, you had to be a mountaineer, and then once you went through all those different f stages of your what you did, then you eventually come to roped climbing, hmm. and so that kind of caught me at age fourteen to sixteen, something like that. Yeah, but I have to ask you since we're starting to kind of get into the uh, at least the planning phases for the Everest season coming up. Yeah, what you have cooking for this year. Yeah, great. So that's who I was just in, in contact with. So um, I am managing a, an expedition to the south side of Everest on behalf of the National Geographic Society. Uh -huh. And it's on a project called Life at the Extremes. Um, so it's a, 
a multi-year project to study life at the extremes. And so we have Everest, we have uh, forests, so it would be the Amazon and then the oceans. And so this is the starting expedition. So I'm the um, expedition manager. I'm not the, I'm not climbing and I'm not the leader and, but I get to be a boy scout and talk on radios, marshal helicopters, hang out with my Sherpa friends and yeah. use 30 years of networking and contacts in Nepal to get our permits for the, um, to get everything squared away. But it's um, fairly ambitious. So our goal is to sample ice cores from near the summit, um, install weather stations, AWS, automatic weather stations. So near the summit, South Coal, Camp 2, Base Camp, Patients Down Valley, Intersex. Um, and those will be state-of-the-art, scientific, um, and some of them will be able to relay images. So there's a 3G cell tower, so working with that and um, going with that. Uh, from a geology standpoint, we'll be mapping and dating the moraine complexes of the Kumbu Glacier. So they've been mapped, but they hadn't dated. So um, as rock is exposed. So we'll see when the surges are of the glaciers and how they have gone with that. We'll be doing lake core sediment. So lake sediment coring. Yeah. So we'll pull out a sample of the muck that's in the lake. And so we have a series of lakes that we only go out with a raft and we pull up a sample and then look at that. And that will give us some um, the paleoclimate data set, which is how we understand what the climate did in years past and what it might do in the future. So that's part of understanding that. And then we have a full suite of biological inventory that we're working with. And so that is um, from looking at the plant life that's there and the insect life. The society is sort of pulling this together with scientists from Montana State, Cambridge, Appalachia State, um, and to a variety of universities, experts in their field, and then Rolex, which is the title sponsor of this, is footing the bill. Nice. So. But you, so do you feel like you, I don't know about turn to corner exactly, but what is it about these types of expeditions that interests you and makes you want to be involved? I like Science. Science is cool. <laughs> yeah. Climate change is, um, that's my next summit. So uh, go back a little bit. 2016, I suffered a heart attack while climbing. So I was like, I don't need to be chasing that stuff anymore. So working towards climate um, from a policy standpoint and from advocacy, work with Protect Our Winners. And having seen the change firsthand up there, it's with that. So when this opportunity came to study climate on Everest and having been associated with Everest for 20 years and knowing it and the Sherpa community and how to work with it worked out really well. Uh, well, I know you have a busy day. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Oh, we got um, more time. But I just want to say thanks so much for the time. It was great yeah, talking Greg. to you. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, thanks uh, for all of you out there in podcast land for listening in. Thanks again to Conrad for making the time to come on the podcast. If you want to follow what he's up to, follow him on Instagram at Conrad underscore anchor. That's A-N-K-E-R. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. 
Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals, and it comes courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. See you next time. <laughs>